Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Wrightsis. Thank you for listening. The film Murder on Middle Beach premiered on HBO in November. The creators of the documentary, Madison Hamburg and Solomon Pachanik, are alumni of SCAD, and their film will be featured in SCAD, a TV fest. Each year, the festival celebrates the best of design, creativity, and innovation in television and streaming media. Later this hour, we'll hear about the virtual lineup for this event, and Summer Evans will speak with the filmmakers of Murder on Middle Beach. First, We'll hear about a legendary film actor. Since the recent death of Cicely Tyson, many tributes to the acclaimed actress have appeared on various platforms. The Atlanta-based Canadian writer Ashanti Infantry interviewed Miss Tyson in December, just two days after the legendary actress celebrated her 96th birthday. She joins us now to discuss that experience. Ashanti Infantry, welcome to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. So great to be with you. You wrote this article for Zoomer magazine, a Canadian lifestyle glossy, and the photos are stunning. I was trying to think of a U.S. counterpart, and Vanity Fair came to mind. Is that appropriate? It certainly is in terms of the layout, the care, and the quality of the writing and the magazine. Zoomer is dedicated to boomers, so there's a little bit of um, similarity perhaps with AARP magazine as well. Okay. Well, I would say this article certainly is for all ages. I can only imagine how thrilling it must have been to speak with Miss Tyson in December. What were your impressions? Oh, it, it absolutely was. I was so thrilled, uh, first of all, to get the assignment and to be able to sit 
computer to computer <laughs> across from the great lady herself. And she was lovely. She was gracious. She was sharp. Um, she was funny. I think I was surprised by a little bit of the wit and the sauciness that came across in some of her answers. She was quick to correct me when I made any errors. At one point, I called Viola Davis, Viola Desmond, and she quickly rounded me up to correct me. <laughs> Nothing like having a 96-year-old set you straight. Well, that wasn't the only takeaway. Um, you know, in her book, Just As I Am, her first memoir, her only memoir, published just a few days before she passed away in January, she also talks about her exercise routine. And Miss Tyson had a pull-up bar across her bedroom door, and she writes that she did um, three sets of 20 pull-ups daily. Now, I don't know if she was still doing that right up to 96, but she certainly, when I saw her, was as lean and as fit as you would imagine anyone to be decades younger than her. When I read that in your piece, I thought of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and her rigorous exercise regimen, and it made me rethink the fact that I like to say my favorite exercise is reading. That's not funny, is it? <laughs> and I'm telling you, as someone who's just, you know, a few years or more younger than Miss Tyson, I can barely get out five push-ups, so I'm going to have to work on that. <laughs> okay. You wrote that Despite her indelible position at the cross-section of African-American arts and culture, Tyson has been firmly circumspect, preferring to let characters like Miss Jane Pittman speak for her, having completed her autobiography. Was she more open about her personal life in your conversation? Yes, I was surprised by exactly how open she was about some things, although she did re remain circumspect about others. So for example, um, her relationship, her, her decades-long relationship and eight-year marriage to Miles Davis, she spoke in great detail about that union and also many of the negative things about it, his infidelity, um, his volatile demeanor. And it was surprising how private she'd been throughout her life that she was now willing to touch on those things. On the other hand, you know, she has a daughter, at least one child um, that she gave birth to uh, when she was 17. And they seem to have had a fairly uh, fragile relationship at times, partly because Ms. Tyson sent her to boarding school as a single mom after she divorced uh, two years after marrying her daughter's father. She divorced and decided to raise the child on her own and sent her to boarding school at the age of nine. And that seemed to have created some distance between them. And in the book, she writes that this child, who really is a woman of about 80 now, that they still saw each other regularly, but that there was still some fragility in their relationship. She didn't go into depth about it. She didn't mention whether or not she has grandchildren. Um, although I have come across subsequently after speaking to her, some references to a grandchild, but that seemed to be a little bit off limits still talking about her relationship with her daughter. 
Mm. Modeling was her passport to acting. In 1972, Cicely Tyson appeared in her first movie, Sounder. What was her takeaway from that experience? Well, certainly she was thrilled to have the role and to see herself on the screen. And it, it was a role that brought her a lot of acclaim and set the groundwork for many other roles she would have. However, when she was doing publicity for the film, there was an unfortunate experience she had where uh, some of the reporters expressed you know, sort of surprise of the loving nature of the relationship between this family, this husband and wife, sharecropper, and their son. And the fact that the son called his father daddy in the film, one of the reviewers or reporters that Miss Tyson encountered confessed to her that it took him aback to hear a black child calling his black father daddy. And that's when she realized that there are some people who just didn't see the humanity of Black people. And that's when she committed herself to ensuring that the roles that she took on going forward would always work to enlighten and uplift images of Black people. Shocking to think that people would respond that way. I interviewed Barry Jenkins the first time when he was promoting Moonlight. And he said, one of the most meaningful scenes for him to shoot was of a black man cooking dinner. He said, when was the last time you saw a black man fixing a meal on the screen? I love that film. Oh, I adored it. I didn't have an answer for him immediately. And he said, yeah, that's why. And when I read in your piece about her response to that remark about not ever seeing a little boy call his father daddy, I thought about what Barry Jenkins had mentioned many years later, many decades later, about Moonlight and thought, my God, how far we have yet to go. And, you know, Black fathers cook, mine did. Uh, and, and that's just the norm in, in households. And to think that somebody has never seen that, that depicted, it, it really is heartbreaking to think that we still grapple with issues like that. Yeah. Dignity is the word that appears repeatedly in everything that has been written about Cicely Tyson. Did she talk about the responsibility she felt important to convey with her acting? She certainly did, particularly um, when she talked about the, the 70s and the black exploitation era of movie making, it was an interesting time for Miss Tyson because on one hand, she was making films like Sounder and the autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman. But at the same time, um, she was also being asked to portray roles in some of the black exploitation films. Perhaps she didn't specifically say, but it was in that era um, where she did not feel comfortable with some of those portrayals. And she actually talked about being out of work and instead choosing to go to 
um, the college campus speaking circuit and use that opportunity to make a little bit of a living, but also to um, speak to the young people about the dignity and the, um, the, the sense of propriety that she hoped uh, she could bring to filmmaking. Dignity ultimately defined her. In your Zoomer feature, it's also important for us to point out that she did not lose one ounce of glamour to her 96th birthday. My goodness, those shoots, the fashions. What did you think about her posing in those creations by B. Michael? I thought it just absolutely lived up to the, the image that she has always portrayed on screen of being a dignified, glamorous woman when we would see her on red carpets and at award show. Um, when she sat down with me for the Zoom interview, um, she was made up and just looked at us as if she was ready to, to um, you know, hit the red carpet. And I know that the, the fashion shoot, um, the, the photography that accompanies the piece uh, in Zoomer, which people can find on everythingzoomer.com. Unfortunately, the magazine's not available here in the US, but the images just tell a fabulous story about this woman who remained graceful and fashion forward uh, to the end of her life. And I hope that these lasting images, along with many other tributes that have been done for her, leave a, a wonderful impression in people's minds. Ashanti, ultimately, in her autobiography, what did Cicely Tyson have to say about and directly to Black women? Ms. Tyson was very concerned that Black women did not have the opportunity to be their full selves. And, you know, there's a bit of a dichotomy sometimes between what's the archetype, the strong Black woman, and the way that Black women have to deal with their fears and vulnerabilities as if people don't expect them to be both. Uh, the angry Black woman is another stereotype that we deal with often. And she was very clear about wanting Black women to be their full selves. As she says in the book, you know, Black women can be simultaneously resolute and trembling, fierce and frightened, dominant and receding. And she encouraged Black women to pursue their dreams and to not be afraid to fumble, uh, but to remember that they have full rights in society to be everything that they can be. Journalist Ashanti Infantry. More information on her article about Cicely Tyson for Zoomer magazine will appear on our website at wabe.org slash citylights. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. 
That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. SCAT, a TV fest, will hold virtual events and presentations starting today and running through Saturday. Each year, the festival celebrates the best of design, creativity, and innovation in television and streaming media. One of the documentaries highlighted in the festival was created by two SCAD alumni, Madison Hamburg and Solomon Pachanik. Their new documentary, Murder on Middle Beach, was released on HBO in November. City Lights producer Summer Evans spoke with the documentarians, along with Andrew Reeve-Rapp, the dean of SCAD School of Entertainment Arts. Andra, the annual SCAD ATV Fest is normally held in person, but due to the pandemic, this year's will be held over a weekend virtually. How did SCAD pivot to this virtual presentation? Well, you know, Summer, we didn't miss a beat. We know how important this festival is for our students to connect with industry leaders and also for our Georgia community uh, to have the ability to connect with all the people who are up in front of the, you know, in front and behind the camera. So we really just in true SCAD fashion moved very quickly to make sure we were providing these same opportunities um, to our students and to our Georgia community. And for us, it's much more intimate this go around because we're coming to you live in your living rooms. And I feel that during this, this time, you know, this has been the language. The language has been television. It's how we've all connected. It's what we've been doing. We've been binging. Um, we've been watching these extraordinary programs. And it just seemed the natural turn to, to do this and to, to make sure we were still providing all those opportunities. And what would you say the mission of SCAD ATV Fest is? It's truly to connect our students to the industry. Um, it's a perfect bridge so that our students are able to meet with, you know, showrunners and actors and directors and producers, writers, casting directors, um, and really have the opportunity to engage with them like nowhere else. I mean, that's a hallmark of SCAD is really making sure that our students have those engagements because when you come to SCAD, you know, those conversations begin your freshman year. It happens throughout your time here where we're bringing you those opportunities with our mentorship programs, with our festivals, so that our students get to engage with these people who are going to set them on these paths. And because of those engagements, you're able to start your career 
while you're here. Um, we have a casting office, the only one at the university level. We've been able to place students in front of and behind the camera for over 500 projects, you know, in the past year alone. And those are, those are jobs. Those are jobs in the Georgia industry and in Los Angeles and New York as well. Um, and we're really proud of that because that's what it's all about. It's giving them the opportunity for these steps in those doors. And festivals like this really add to the 99% rate of students who graduate from SCAD getting jobs right after. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I, I think back to an ATV fest where we had a student, Kiki Richardson, who is a performing arts student, and she got to have a master class with Terrence Howard and asked him a lot of questions. And then fast forward, you know, Kiki just starred opposite Terrence in the final season of Empire. And she pulled out her notebook and she was like, Mr. Howard, <laughs> I remember at ATV Fest when you said the following things. And he was just blown away. And he was like, my gosh, you know, that's incredible that that connection happened. And then here we are. And, you know, I can point to so many opportunities like that, that these kinds of festivals connect our students to those moments. Can you give us an overview of this year's virtual presentations? Absolutely. I mean, we're bringing you the same incredible panels and, you know, access to these in conversations with our stars who are coming, Brian Cranston and Lawrence Fishburne and Chrissy Metz, Journey Smollett, and then our incredible alumni panels where our students who are working in industry get to come back and give back to the students here. And, you know, I'm particularly excited about Madison and Solomon's panel on their remarkable piece. And that, you know, those are, those are the opportunities. We have a Wonder Woman series where we connect our students to some of the incredible women in industry. Um, I think that's really important. We have a focus on that and on diversity always. And I'm really excited about a costume panel that we're having that has Gabrielle Bender from you know, Queen's Gambit, which we all benched during this, uh, <laughs> this period. And that's a perfect example. We had a, at Film Fest, we had a panel of costume designers. And after it, one of our costume design students actually got hired by, by Janie Bryant from Mad Men um, and is now working with her. So those are some, you know, examples of how important these connections can be. Wow. It sounds like a really incredible lineup. It is. <laughs> Madison and Solomon, like Andre said, that you guys are going to be a part of the alumni panel discussion that's happening today at noon. And you'll be discussing your new four-part documentary, Murder on Middle Beach, which is out now on HBO. For our listeners who are unfamiliar with this tragic story, can you give us a brief overview, Madison, of what it's about? Sure. Yeah. Um, Murder on Middle Beach follows my journey into looking into my mother's past after her homicide 10 years ago. And it basically chronicles an in-depth look into, you know, the shared grief within my family and the ripple effects of unsolved tragedies uh, or this unsolved tragedy on my family and community. Some of the footage in the documentary was filmed during your time at SCAD. What was the driving force behind you wanting to create this project? I was at a, a point, I came back to SCAD after taking a year off when my mom died and I was at a point in my grief where I was trying to not lose her memory, you know, just 
trying not to lose the sound of her voice or um, not be able to close my eyes and picture her face. And I felt that film would be a way to memorialize her in a way. So that's how it started. Film has always been a sort of coping mechanism for me. I, my parents told me that they were getting divorced the day before Christmas. And on Christmas, they bought me a handy cam. And that was when I was 11. As a kid, you don't really know how to process that kind of thing. So I, I just lost myself in that, you know, making small little short films with my friends and that kind of thing. So it was sort of a natural impulse to, to do something with film to help me process what I was going through. Right, like a type of therapy by creating this project. Solomon, you are also a SCAD alum. How did you get involved in this project with Madison? Well, Madison and I actually met the first day of our freshman year. We had the same freshman year experience together because we were both in the film program. And, you know, I got to know Madison a little bit um, the first quarter at SCAD, but then all of a sudden he was sort of gone. And I didn't know the details of what had happened. I knew it was something tragic and through friends over the next year or so, I, I learned that his mother had been killed. Because of this, this crime, you know, Madison ended up taking time off from school. And when he came back, our curriculums were sort of staggered in a way where he was able to produce my projects and I was able to produce his projects. You know, we're both sort of writer, director, editors who end up producing a lot as well. And I knew about this project. I knew that he was starting it with his documentary class and I was really excited for him to pursue it. And then after we graduated, he had an opportunity to come back for the Atelier program. And he reached out to me to produce a much larger chapter of the story where in 2016, with resources from SCAD, we were able to do a much deeper dive and a, a much more thorough investigation with master interviews with his family other persons of interest. We did some of our first sort of like reconnaissance and pure investigative work. And a lot of that material is actually what ended up being sold to the network, which gave us the opportunity to, to create the actual series for HBO. Mm -hmm. So like you said, you have produced projects before, but this one is very different. What was it like working with someone who was directly impacted by such a horrific event? Yeah, it's, it's fascinating, right? Because Madison, he's, you know, one of my best friends in life. And so I have this really weird balance where as the producer of the show, you know, things that are emotionally challenging are also inherently entertaining. And, but I'm also sort of watching this really difficult process and these sort of stages of grief for people that I, I care about. The, the filmmaker in me is always fascinated by Madison's ability to sort of walk this line between like family member and filmmaker. And I think that that is what makes this series so special is because that line gets a little bit blurred. And um, I think in a lot of ways that sort of like meta and point of view take on true crime is really important because it, it shines a light on the humanity of all of it. Right. Yeah. Madison, how did you try and remain objective when you were investigating and interviewing your close family members? One thing that always stuck out to me was I was very careful not to have a hunch. The weight of an accusation 
towards a family member, including my dad, who was the one of the main persons of interest, was very great for me because it was, you know, related to my, my personal life. That's my dad. You know, maybe part of me didn't want that to to be a reality, but another part of me thought that if I, I wanted to avoid confirmation bias at all costs. Um, I also, you know, I don't think that the story is is like just this superficial investigation. You know, I what I was really interested in in doing is show the weight of an act, those types of accusations and and pointing fingers and what the and the results of my mother's murder going unsolved for so long. It was really hard to stay objective, and there is no way to to do that. You know, there's always going to be some sort of inherent bias. And that that was really one of the main challenges with doing a point of view documentary like this. And Solomon and I called the co-editor of Minding the Gap. So that's another point of view coming of age documentary produced by Steve James and Gordon Quinn's company, Cartemquin. When we were gearing up to partner with HBO, I just watched every point of view documentary I could find and reached out to everyone involved <laughs> that I could find. And I had met one of the producers on that at a, another film festival and she connected me with Josh Altman. And we were like, how do we do this in a way where it's point of view, but it, it feels present tense and it doesn't feel exploitive. Like it doesn't feel like, you know, because you can get too objective in true crime where you lose the like human element and it and the empathy for you know the people that are left in the wake of a crime like this and what he said was you have to invite the audience into those challenges like that's the most honest way to do this because then there's no like guessing of you know why you left something in and why you know or how you're manipulating something like if i'm if i'm questioning my role let's tell the audience that let's like bring them in and then you know, there's a lot, we had over a thousand hours of footage and over 200 shooting days by the end of this, uh, end of the, you know, eight years now <laughs> of making this. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff on the cutting room floor that, you know, where we either realized like this is going too far or, you know, there's just not time to include greater conflicts about, you know, just like the making of this documentary and even impeding in my own grief. You know, one of the questions was like, I always asked myself near the end of this was, is my life driving the documentary or is the documentary driving my life? And usually you can find with it, with making a documentary, that ethical answer. But at a certain point, it's because of, it's a point of view story about my life. It's hard. Sometimes it's hard to delineate that. Yeah. I mean, watching the documentary, some of the questions that you raise when you're having these like self-reflections looking into the camera, I had two watching it. Like, well, is he thinking about this? What does he think about that? Like when you had to go undercover and wire yourself and, you know, talk to your father, I was like, what does he feel some conflict in that, you know, that gray area? And so it was nice to see you reflecting in the camera, like, should I keep this audio? You know, is this okay? Should I tell my father? I think those elements were important. Solomon, did you have to step in sometimes and say, okay, I see that the documentary is going this way and you are really close to your family members, the subjects like this. Well, how about we take a step back and we look at it from a different perspective? You know, I think Madison has always 
really been incredibly objective in this entire investigation, right? So it hasn't really been like urging the team or him to take a step back. It's been more like helping him process like, okay, we just learned some, some really heavy things. Let's just talk about our feelings for a little bit. Like what, what does it feel like to have these, you know, allegations sort of floating around about your family? What, what are, what's the emotional recourse for this kind of stuff? Um, And I think that that is why, like, having a crew that you can really confide in and like friends along for the journey is really helpful not to speak for Madison, but you know, for anyone, I think that this is a super overwhelming undertaking. And so not just to step back objectively, but also to just consider the, the emotional weight of, of what we were dealing with was important. Solomon Pichenik, SCAD alum and producer of the documentary Murder on Middle Beach with the documentary's director and fellow SCAD alum, Madison Hamburg. We also heard from SCAD's Dean of the School of Entertainment Arts, Andrew Reeve Rapp. We'll be back with more of that conversation after a short break. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Let's return to more of City Lights producer Summer Evans' conversation about the virtual SCAD at TV Fest. It begins today and runs through Saturday. Summer spoke with Andrew Reeve Rabb. Dean of SCAD School of Entertainment Arts, along with SCAD alumni and documentarians, Madison Hamburg and Solomon Pachenik. They'll be on a panel discussion today at noon about their new documentary, Murder on Middle Beach, which is streaming now on HBO. There are some really emotional moments that you have, Madison, with your family while you're interviewing them. And you also find out some pretty difficult information about your mom's life and who she was as an adult. What was it like for you to open that Pandora's box to what was revealed about your mom, but also your dad and other family members that you might not have known at the time of your mom's murder when you were 18? You know, uh, I say it in the film, but there's a point in people's lives when they get to meet their parents as human beings and uncovering Barbara was something that I became sort of obsessive about, but it's also comes with the fears of like who my mom actually was is someone that I wouldn't like or wouldn't want to know. You know, luckily my mom is pretty selfless, you know, at the end of the day from everything I've learned, but it was definitely a fear I had going into it. I think it, the most difficult part was after partnering with HBO and realizing that, holy shit, we're going to be seeing this stuff on the air and this could easily, very easily be exploitive and sort of focus on the conflict and not, you know, the path to resolution. And so that was something that we really wanted to hone in on and also open the audience to like my struggles with like choosing to do this through this format and trying not to be exploitive of my family and and the things that they're confiding in with me. 
In the documentary, you and Solomon, I think, talk about wanting to exonerate some of your family members who were possibly being viewed as potential suspects. One of those were your father, um, which was your mother's ex-husband. And while talking to your dad on the phone or in person, you tape those conversations, I think mostly unbeknownst to him. Did you ever consider not using some of that audio tape in the documentary? So one thing that my dad has complained about since my mother was murdered was not having a chance to have his side of the story told. And doing this without his voice would be incredibly one-sided. I mean, there's just like, there just wasn't a way around it. And I think that my relationship with him is, it provides a completely different lens than what the initial media, you know, news media impression was of the murder. So yeah, that was one of the driving decisions of including that audio. Also, it's it's something that I was going through as well, you know, it was a major aspect of, of how I was uh, processing all of this and trying to get answers. Right. Because not only were you processing the death of your mother, but you were also processing this strained relationship with your father and also yeah. trying to process that you didn't know what's going on in your childhood. You know, honestly, the best case scenario in this would be that someone not related to anyone that I've looked into is responsible for my mother's murder, you know? And I try to give everyone the benefit of the doubt because the case just on its face from an investigative standpoint is a really complicated case. So like you said, like when we set out from an investigative standpoint, we're looking to exonerate people because even though everyone is innocent until proven guilty, there's this lingering what if in the backs of people's minds that prevents you know, a family who's supposed to be unconditionally loving from completely trusting one another. Since the documentary aired in November 2020, how has your relationship with your father and some other family members been affected? This has been sort of like an eight-year kind of double life for me. I wasn't outwardly, you know, giving details to my family. I didn't tell a lot of people that my mom had even died, you know, just like coworkers and things like that. So releasing the documentary for me has been like a really um, relieving, scary, but also relieving experience, um, sort of kind of airing out what I've been doing and what we've been digging into. You know, obviously there's been things said that have really damaged some relationships between my family members, but you know, they're extremely resilient. And, uh, you know, I'm still in contact with everyone outside of my dad. And I still have really strong relationships with them. You know, we had family screenings before the series aired, which was sort of like a mandatory thing for me. Um, and every, you know, we, we had uh, conversations, individual conversations about, you know, how to process and best prepare for when this airs, you know, publicly. You know, I've been really surprised and kind of overwhelmed with like support on social media and just like the response to how we put everything together. So it's, I think in the long run, it's been a, a net positive with the exception of my relationship with my dad. And, you know, I want a dad. And the last time I talked to my dad is on camera in the show, the last conversation I had with him. And I'm ready to have that relationship with him if he can fill in some holes in the past. 
uh, an answer for some things that are left unanswered. That frustration comes through in the documentary. I know I was holding my breath, just waiting for him to answer those questions. So I can only imagine how you were feeling. Yeah. We're excited to get into that on our, on our panel. <laughs> that was one of, one of the things, cause there's a lot of just like kind of untold stories behind, behind making this that Solomon and I have just, we've gone through a wild roller coaster over the past few years. Oh, I can only imagine. And I was curious after this aired, did you receive a lot of feedback from viewers of things you guys maybe should have looked into more or some leads you should have followed up on or maybe possible other theories? Yeah. You know, I think that when people approach anything in true crime, they're, they're going to try to figure it out themselves. Like that, that's sort of the, the appeal of the genre. I really pride our show in sort of challenging those conventions and not necessarily answering everything and leaving a lot unsaid or understated because I think it is more of a story about family and grief. However, you're always going to have armchair detectives at home who think they know everything about the gifting tables or they know everything about money laundering or, you know, people you should look into or whereabouts. However, I also think that since the documentary has been released, we have this incredible platform for people to reach out to us and give anonymous tips at barbarahambergtips.com. So like it has been really great for our investigation in a way, a lot of it we have to filter through. But I think that that's kind of to be expected with putting something out like this, that people are going to formulate their own opinions and being able to filter through it is really important and block the haters, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) So is there a possibility of a follow-up documentary or a part five? It's too early to, to say right now, but, you know, at the end of the fourth episode, you see that we've, my team now has that, you know, over a thousand case files um, related to my mom's homicide, which have been extremely illuminating in really surprising ways. And in some ways what we expected, you know, whether or not there is a follow-up right now, we're definitely looking into it. Congratulations on that. That was really wonderful that it turned in your favor for that. Thanks. So I know that the investigation of your mom's homicide is still ongoing, but did creating this documentary bring you any sort of peace or closure? I think it did, especially releasing the documentary. I don't know that there'll ever be closure for my mom's passing. Nothing's going to bring her back, but it's created this channel between now that the documentary is out between me and other people who have undergone you know, murder or loss, Um, you know, loss is somewhat ubiquitous, although we all grieve in our own unique ways, but it's created this channel between me and and people who have reached out about their own stories and their own, you know, being able to, someone reached out when the, when it came out saying that like, they were never able to fully articulate something that they were going through in their grief until they watched, you know, a specific seed with me and my girlfriend looking through my mom's Facebook or, you know, the memorial. And that has been extremely gratifying. You know, I didn't want, I didn't tell a lot of people that my mom had died when she did because I, and I came back to school because I didn't want to be the kid whose mom was murdered. And I didn't want, I didn't want my mom's murder to define me. Um, 
And in, in many ways, I feel that releasing this project has been my opportunity to define it. And, you know, we, we, you can't control the things that happen to you in your life, but you can only control how you respond to them. I think the second year of, of grief for me was the most difficult that, you know, the first year, everybody's like always checking in and, you know, family, extended family, friends, but the next year going through the holidays and, you know, my mom's birthday and mother's day, I just felt really alone. And I wish I had seen something or, you know, had any reference for someone else going through what I was going through. And the amount of people that I've talked to now since the documentary is released and have seen it and have reached out who are in that second year of grief, you know, just being able to see, you know, I don't know, not to be like egotistical or anything. Like it's a, it's an extremely humbling experience for me and I'm, it's really gratifying. And I was very, very lucky for the stars to align for all of the opportunities that I've gotten. But I have to admit that I'm, I'm very fulfilled with, being able to connect with other people who are going through a, a similar thing and create something that may help someone else um, in that position. Yeah. A silver lining in a tragic story. Yeah. Solomon and Madison. So how does it feel to be returning virtually to your alma mater and discussing both your journeys from SCAD students to documentarians? Well, I think it's amazing. You know, SCAD is an incredible place that nurtures, you know, some of the most creative minds that that I ever experienced. So I will always, you know, love SCAD and everything that they do for students. And the way that they've nurtured this project has also been really incredible. And I've been fortunate to be a part of that process. I think that specifically for documentary, there's a great opportunity to sort of share what we've learned in sort of scaling this project up because this is literally a student film that is now on one of the biggest streaming platforms in the world. And so that evolution, you know, we know the ins and outs of, and I would love to share that kind of experience with students who are wondering how to take their ideas to the next level and it's possible. It definitely requires hard work and determination. But I think that SCAD really, in my opinion, gave us the tools and relationships to do something with this idea that has become so much more than, than just a film. Andre, will there be a Q&A session following their panel discussions as well as the other virtual events and screenings? Absolutely. You know, I'm sitting here in awe of these two phenomenal men and listening to them. And that is what this whole festival is about. It's being able to be um, privy to all of the, of what happens behind the scenes and for them to share this extraordinary story and their process with not only the audience, you know, of viewers who got to tune in and see this beautiful piece, but also to our students, just hearing what Solomon and Madison are able to give back to them is extraordinary. And that, you know, there is Q&A throughout the festival for all of the panels and for the in-conversations so that 
you know, we're all lifelong learners. And so the fact that as an audience member, you get to tune in and, and ask these questions is such a gift. So I'm certainly humbled by both of you and your extraordinary talent and what you've done and know this kind of relationship at SCAD, that is what we do as mentors, as SCAD family. You know, that relationship begins when you get here and it never ends. We're lifelong supporters. We, we offer that to all of our, our students who come here. We want that opportunity to, to be there um, at the beginning and throughout their entire careers. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. And my final question for Solomon and Madison, what advice would either of you give film or TV students who are looking to make their own path in this career? Get a mentor. You know, I think when I came back to SCAD, I didn't have a relationship with my dad after my mom died. I didn't have a relationship with my dad, so it was sort of like orphaned in a way. You know, dropping back into this like amazing community where people are on their porch who don't know you just like wave at you. You know, everybody, there's some weird like nostalgic familiarity to like, just like the community. It's very accepting. And I started turning to my faculty members, people that I worked with, you know, I worked at uh, Foxy Loxy Cafe and, and a couple other like popular restaurants and stuff like that. But like, I started turning to my bosses. I started turning to the faculty. I started turning to my friends, like family. And that kind of mentor menteeship between faculty members or people that I bothered at film festivals and keeping in touch with them has just taught me so much about life, about growing up and in, in, in filmmaking. You know, I think in filmmaking, there's this like, pay forward kind of mentality where someone helped someone, the, the person that you're reaching out to, to be in the position that they're in. And they, you know, a lot of, you know, I tried to like do the same thing, but like a lot of people who are a little further along the, their careers, like are definitely willing to help, you know, it's just like making, you know, seizing the opportunity that, and then just watching everything that premieres at Sundance, everything at, that comes to the Savannah Film Festival and, and the ATV Fest, and just becoming a student of the craft, you know, watching, you know, if you want to do docs, watch all different types of docs, Verite docs, watch all of the Steve James docs, the Frederick Weissman's of the world, and and try and push the conventions, because that's, you know, it's it's a huge undertaking to make something, so make sure you're you're passionate about it. I don't know, Solomon, you have anything you would, you would say? I think that's spot on. Really the only other thing I would add is like, make sure you have balance that allows you to, to take your time with it because every, every film project specifically, you know, speaking of film, they, things take a long time to get made. They take a long time and a long time, a lot of resources, a lot of people behind them, backing them and pushing them. So just don't give up because it doesn't, necessarily happen fast. I think this is sort of one of those cases where, you know, it did really accelerate quickly, but this is, this was a project that was filmed for, you know, going into nine years. So things take time and just don't give up, stay diligent and resilience, resilience. Yeah. And there, there may be naysayers along the way, but, you know, 
just speaking of our pitch process, the last pitch that we had lined up for this was HBO and they were the ones that said yes. So don't give up. SCAD alum and documentary producer of Murder on Middle Beach, Solomon Pachenik. He was joined by the documentary's director and fellow SCAD alum, Madison Hamburg. Joining them both was SCAD's dean of the School of Entertainment Arts, Andrew Reeve Rabb. The panel discussion with Madison and Solomon begins at noon today. SCAD, a TV fest, runs through Saturday. More information will be on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., director-producer Shayla Harris speaks with us about the Black Church, our history, our song, the superb new PBS series from Dr. Henry Louis Gates. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Shelley Canavy is our engineer, and I'm Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Thanks for listening to member-supported W-A-B-E Atlanta's Choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.